0: Scripture passage this evening is Acts chapter 13, verse 13 to 52. It can be found in your pew Bible on page 1714. As I've said before, since we've been going through uh, the canons of Dort, the heads of doctrine of the points of doctrine, Um, it's hard to take one scripture passage that really clearly teaches what is so amazing about God's grace and different aspects of it. What I'm hoping to do tonight is read Acts chapter 13, verse 13 through 52 as kind of a narrative expression of what we're talking about tonight. But what we're talking about tonight in Irresistible Grace is not clearly seen necessarily, in what Acts chapter 13 says. It's not on the surface, so to speak. It's what's behind the scenes going on. And so in order to show the behind the scenes of what's going on, I intend to go to a a number of different passages to show you um, what's going on in Acts chapter 13. Another number of different biblical passages that show us the reality of what's going on here. So let's read together Acts Chapter 13, starting in verse 13. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga and Pamphylia, where John left then to return to Jerusalem. From Perga they went on to Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the synagogue rulers sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel, And you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. He endured their conduct for about 40 years. In the desert, he overthrew seven nations in Canaan and gave their land as people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. And the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not that one. No, but he is coming after me, whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have become your father. The fact that God raised him from the dead, never to decay, is stated in these words. I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David So it is stated elsewhere, you will not let your Holy One see decay. For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his fathers, and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wander wander and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first, since you rejected and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. We now turn to the Gentiles, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The question that must be asked concerning Acts chapter 13 here is, uh, what makes them to differ? These Jews who heard this gospel proclamation in the synagogue on Sunday and the Gentiles who believed, what makes them to differ? And I hope uh, that is what we can discover today as we look at the fourth head of doctrine and the canons of Dort what is sometimes or oftentimes called irresistible grace. We're going to be looking at the canons quite a bit and what it says. So if you want to open up the back of your Greensalt hymnals to page 103 and following, that's where it can be found. Now popular evangelist Greg Lowry, when asked the question, did God choose us or did we choose God? uses an analogy kind of like this. Let's say life is like you're on this highway, multi-lane highway, and you're following along this highway like so many others in this world. And you see that there's this exit. And there's not a sign that marks what this exit is going to, but you look off to this exit and you kind of wonder, maybe I should get off this this multi-lane highway, and take this exit. But you keep going, and you see this exit again. And finally, you you decide you're going to get off this exit, and you go off this exit, and when you go off this exit, you turn around, and you see a sign that says, elect before the foundation of the world. He goes on to say, it's been said, God wants every man to be saved. The devil wants every man to be damned, man has the casting vote. You want to find out if you're one of the chosen ones, one of the elect? Take that exit off the highway of God's forgiveness, and you will prove you are. Although he means good by answering the question in this way, He makes election ultimately determined by the individual's choice rather than the sovereign decree of God. Almost as if to say, if you are one of the elect, it's because you chose to be one of the elect. And this kind of answer really begins with a presupposition, doesn't it? His whole analogy of the highway really begins with a presupposition, and it's this that man, in and of himself, in his current condition, has the ability to see the exit of God's grace and take it if he so desires. So Greg Lowry's answer to the question, how do they differ? That is to say, all the people who are driving on the highway and you who are sitting in your car choosing to turn off on this exit of God's grace, what makes them to differ? Greg Lowry would say, it is your casting vote. You make you to differ. You make you to be one of the elect. But what we find in the scriptures is actually much deeper, much more profound, and speaks to the true miracle and grace of salvation. So, our theme tonight, it's a bit long, but I wanted to get this Trinitarian element into it because that's where we're coming to now. When we come to irresistible grace, we would really say that this is the work of the Holy Spirit. So... Those whom the Father has elected and Christ has died for will. Come to saving faith through told you it was long the supernatural regenerating work. Of the Holy Spirit. The supernatural regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. So you got the Father elects, the Christ, uh, the Son redeems by dying and being resurrected. And the Holy Spirit applies this work to the elect through the work of supernatural regeneration. So we're going to be looking at this uh, in three points. First is the call and the called. And you'll see why I named them these things here in a moment as we look at the canons. The second is regeneration and the regenerated. Third is faith and the faithful. And the last is the effects. And the means. The effects in the, amine, in the means. So the way this works out is the call and the called is articles 7 through 10. Uh, the re- uh, regenerate regeneration and the regenerated is articles 11 through 13. Faith and the faithful, articles 14 and 15. And the effects and the means are articles 16 and 17 of that third and fourth head there. So let's look at this. This first point, and I erase it for no reason. The call and the call, okay? The call and the call. I told you when we read um, that passage in Acts that we're going to be looking at what makes them to differ, okay? What makes those Jews who heard the gospel in the synagogue and those Gentiles who came to faith differ, what makes them separate from each other. And in order to kind of see what's going on behind the scenes in Acts chapter 13, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 22. Paul, in describing the nature of the gospel, says these words, Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and foolishness to Gentiles. And verse 24 here is key. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So here's Paul's answer to the question going on in Acts chapter 13. And we get keyed into it when we hear that those who were appointed believe, right? And that is the difference between those who come to faith in Christ and those who reject salvation is the call. It's the call. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Jews demand miraculous signs. Greeks look for wisdom. These are people who are wanting something more in order to place faith in Christ. But Paul says, we preach Christ to those whom God has called. The preaching of Christ is a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And this is exactly the truth that... Article 7 and Article 8 of the Canons of Dort describe. Article 7 says, This mystery of His will God revealed to but a small number under the Old Testament, that is to say to the people and nation of Israel. Under the New Testament, the distinction between various peoples having been removed, He reveals it to many. And the cause of this dispensation, or you could say the reason for the difference, is not to be ascribed to the superior worth of one nation above another, nor to their better use of the light of nature, but results wholly from the sovereign good pleasure and unmerited love of God. I just say that the difference is the call. The difference is found in God's mercy or grace. The way Paul would say it in Romans 9 is, I am mercy on whom I have mercy And I will harden whom I harden. That is to say, then, maybe we would say, like Paul supposes someone would say in Romans 9, how does he still find fault? So in Article 8, we have these wonderful words from the canons of Dort. As many as are called by the gospel are unfeignedly called. This is kind of an old fashioned way of saying they are seriously called. They are called seriously. For God has most earnestly and truly declared in his word what is acceptable to him, namely that those who are called should come unto him. And he also seriously promises rest of soul and eternal life to all who come to him and believe. What Article 7 is saying is the difference is found in God, not in man, contrary to what Greg Lowry says and many others like him say. But unless someone were to say then... Well, what use has the gospel if the difference is found in God? We are told by the canons of Dort that the sharing of the gospel, the calling of the gospel that goes out, is not a false call. It's not a not truly meant call. It is a serious call. And it is a true and sincere promise of God that all who believe in Jesus Christ will receive forgiveness of sins. And it is a true promise to those who believe that they will find rest. Therefore, Article 9 goes on to say, we should not see any fault in the gospel that we proclaim, nor in the Christ who is offered in the gospel, nor of God who calls men by the gospel And confers upon them various gifts, but those who are called by the ministry of the word refuse to come and to be converted. In fact, what we should see here is that the fault lies in men. Kind of like what we discussed this morning, that tension between human responsibility and divine sovereignty. The fault lies in themselves, some of whom... When called, regardless of their danger, reject the word of life. Others, though they receive it, suffer it not. And it goes on to talk about the different kinds of soils in Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the sower. Therefore, Article 10 states, but that others who are called by the gospel obey the call and are converted is not to be ascribed to the exercise of free will, whereby someone can distinguish himself above others. "...who are equally furnished with grace, sufficient for faith and conversion. But it must be wholly ascribed to God, who as He has chosen His own from eternity in Christ, so He calls them effectually in time and gives them the gifts of faith and repentance." So, God is what makes a difference. That's how we distinguish between those in Acts 13 who do not believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ and those who in Acts 13 did believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, the thing to distinguish them is found in God's mercy, in God's grace. Let's look at that second point, regeneration and the regenerated. big word, and in order to kind of see what's going on behind the scenes in Acts chapter 13, when it comes to what is happening in the, in the heart of the person, what is happening inside the person, so that those who were appointed to salvation could, could believe, I want to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 and 6, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 and 6 speak to the miracle, the nature of regeneration. It says this, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God and the face of Christ. So some are unbelievers, but what are we to say of us? Verse 6 describes the character, the nature of regeneration. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. So God, in the same way of creation, said, let there be light, made his light shine in our hearts. That's regeneration, to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, that we may look upon Christ and find Him beautiful and find Him to truly be a Savior and find salvation, forgiveness of all our sins in Him. This is what Article 11 describes, this character of regeneration. And it says here in Article 11 that it's not only an inward reality, but also an outward reality. And it says it by saying these words, when a God accomplishes his good pleasure in the elect or works in the true conversion, he not only causes the gospel to be externally, that's outwardly, right, preached to them, not only powerfully illuminates their minds by his Holy Spirit that they may rightly understand and discern the things of the Spirit of God, so that's an outward reality, but by the efficacy of the same regenerating Spirit He pervades the inmost recesses, the inward reality of man. He opens the closed and softens the hardened heart and circumcises that which was uncircumcised, infuses new qualities into the will, which, though heretofore dead, He quickens from being evil, disobedient, and refractory. So there's an outward change of our mind. There's an outward giving of the gospel, but there's also an inward changing of our heart. And we could look at verses like Jeremiah 31, or Ezekiel, that talk about the stone heart being replaced with the heart of flesh. Or the inward change so that the law is written on our hearts. Rather than simply being pressed upon us outwardly. This is what's going on in regeneration. This is what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. That the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ is being Shown in our hearts prior to us believing and having faith. So those Gentiles who were appointed to believe in Acts chapter 13, the reason they were able to proclaim faith in Jesus Christ is not because they were wiser or somehow had more light of nature that they could come to faith in Christ unlike these Jews. But the reason that they came to faith in Jesus Christ is because... God's light shone in their hearts to give them the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ because they were regenerated by the Holy Spirit that they may come to faith in Christ and believe in Him. Article 12 says that this act of regeneration, renewal, new creation, resurrection from the dead, making alive which God works in us without our aid, is an entirely supernatural work. Or, in other words, it is entirely a work of God. These words describe it. But it is evidently a supernatural work, most powerful and at the same time most delightful, astonishing, mysterious, and ineffable. Not inferior in its power to the creation or the resurrection from the dead. As the scripture inspired by the author of this work declares. That's an amazing statement to me. that's being made. That the salvation that is rendered in our hearts by the regenerating supernatural power of the Holy Spirit who is applying the work of Christ and the foreordained election of God the Father to us is not unlike the power of creation. That is to say, when we open up God's Word and we read Genesis 1, and we hear those words of power from God, of Him bringing into existence all the stars in the sky and all the planets and the oceans, and the land, and all the creatures that we can imagine. We are to think that is the same kind of power that takes my dead, sinful, cursed heart and mind and renews it that I may come to faith in Christ. It's a pretty powerful statement being made, and it's the exact one that Paul is making in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 when he says, the same God who said, let light shine out of darkness, let there be light in Genesis 1, is the same God that says, let there be light in your heart that you may come to see the light of Jesus Christ. Therefore, Article 13 says that at the end of the day, what's really truly going on in the miracle of regeneration beyond what we have given to us in the words of Scripture, is a mystery. The manner of this operation cannot be fully comprehended by believers in this life. Nevertheless, we're satisfied to know and experience that by His grace, we are enabled to believe with the heart and to love our Savior. And that leads us to those things that typically follow the work of regeneration. And that is uh, faith and repentance. So let's look at the third point: faith and the faithful. So unless we were to say then at this point that well regeneration is the work of God, but then at that point uh, we're on our own to place faith in Christ, the the canons continue forward, talking about how um, not only is regeneration an entire work of God. But also, faith and repentance are gifts of God, not something that we can boast in bringing to the table of salvation ourselves. And of course, what better passage to look at concerning the gift of faith than Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9? So, not only is regeneration occurring in Acts chapter 13 when those Gentiles who were appointed to believe, believed, but the giving of the gift of faith is occurring as well. And that's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter two, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So the grace in faith equals a gift. In the Hebrew or in the, the Greek, these are, are seen as a unit, and therefore the antecedent or the thing that comes before, the statement of being a gift. Of God is both these things grace and faith. They're, uh, they're both a gift given by God. It's not something we've earned. Uh, it's not something we can boast in. We are entirely God's workmanship. And this is exactly what Article 14 is seeking to proclaim concerning the teaching of Scriptures that faith, therefore, is to be considered the gift of God. Not on account of its being offered by God to man. That is to say, when we hear these words, gift of God, often we can think that what's happening is God is wrapping this really nice present. And if you so wish or desire to open it, you can do so. But if you don't want to open it, you don't have to do so. That's not what's being stated here when we read in Ephesians uh, 2, 8, and 9, that faith, that grace and faith is a gift of God. It says not on account of its being offered by God to man to be accepted or rejected at his pleasure, but because it is in reality conferred upon him, breathed and infused into him, nor even because God bestows the power or ability to believe and then expects that man should by the exercise of his own free will consent to the terms of salvation and actually believe in Christ, but because he who works in man both to will and to work and indeed all things in all produces both the will to believe and the act of believing also. Now this is profound. These are difficult words, um, kind of old language, but this is what I would help you to see that's going on here. That the faith is produced in us by God. That God in His grace produces in us both the will to believe, And the belief itself. That God does not leave us simply in a regenerated state. But by renewing our will. Gives us the desire. To place faith in Jesus Christ. And gives us the faith itself. That's what's being said when we say. That faith is a gift of God. And Article 15 of course says. But God's under no obligation to confer this grace upon any. For how can he be indebted to one who has no previous gifts to bestow as a foundation for such recompense? What's being stated here is if grace is truly to be grace, it cannot be demanded. God is not required to grant this grace to anyone. He grants it to those whom he desires to grant it to. We do not have anything in our own self to have or be deserving of anything that is given to us in grace. That's what's being stated here and it's good to keep that before us, this truth. Finally, let's look at this fourth and final point which kind of brings it all home and kind of brings this doctrine of irresistible grace into the realm of application, the effects and the means. Some people have heard this idea of the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit coming prior to faith and the concept of the gift that God uh, gives us and even... Granting us the desire or the will to place faith in Christ and have caricatured it. In Acts chapter 16, verse 14, we hear of Lydia, Paul's encounter with Lydia, and we're told that God opened Lydia's heart to hear the message of Jesus Christ. Or in Romans chapter 1, verse 14 and 16, we hear that the power of uh, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all those who believe. And these two scripture passages correspond to these last articles of the Canons of Dorp. In Article 16, the accusation comes forward that if this is what salvation is, then aren't we all just robots? I don't know if any of you have heard this kind of terminology used to describe what we believe is going on in salvation. Um, but the Canons of Dort, the Synod of Dort, they got it way before us. And they don't use the word robot. But in Article 16, they state that God spiritually revives, heals, reforms, and in a manner at once, pleasing and powerful, bends it back. So, he, so what's being said here is it's not as if God is coming to us and then even though we don't want to be saved, dragging us to salvation in Jesus Christ. Or it's not as if God is taking those who do, not, who do want to be saved and powerfully resisting their desire to be saved so that they will stay condemned since they aren't one of the elect. That's not what's going on here. And when we talk about this concept of regeneration. It's not a violence done to the will. It's not cosmic rape. And I've heard it called that before. What we're talking about here is a reviving, a healing, a reforming that's pleasing, powerful, and bends the will back towards God's intended purpose for it. Therefore, in Article 16, it says, But as man by the fall did not cease to be a creature endowed with understanding and will, nor did sin which pervaded the whole race of mankind deprive him of the human nature, but brought upon him depravity and spiritual death. That is, we have the image of God. It's been distorted, not destroyed, right? So also this grace of regeneration does not treat men as senseless stocks and blocks. That's the Synod of Dort in the 17th century's version of robots, right? Stocks and blocks. I kind of like that. Nor does it take away their will and its properties or do violence unto. But it's a healing process that takes place. This is the effect of regeneration that then turns man's heart back to God. It's what's going on in in Acts chapter 16 when we're told that God opened Lydia's heart to hear the message of the gospel preached from Paul. Does that sound like cosmic rape to you? Does that sound like a violence to the will of man? Does that sound like robots Or stocks and blocks? Of course not. There's a great and wonderful and precious grace of God being displayed for us. Yet nonetheless, we can then say, if God does every one of these steps, if he is the ultimate sovereign in all these things, then what then is left for the preaching of the gospel? I mean, I'm sure many of us have heard this before. If God determines all who's saved and they are going to be saved no matter what, then why share the gospel? Why preach? Article 17 tells us the reason why we share the gospel, the reason why we preach, is because God has not only ordained the ends, but He has ordained the means by which He accomplishes His ends. Article 17 says, As the almighty operation of God, whereby He brings forth and supports this, our natural life does not exclude, but require the use of the means by which God of His infinite mercy and goodness has chosen to exert His influence, so also the aforementioned supernatural operation of God by which we are regenerated in no wise excludes or subverts The use of the gospel, which the most wise God has ordained to be the seed of regeneration and food of the soul. That's why Romans chapter 1 is so important to understand here because we're told Paul at the beginning of his book to the Romans, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for those who believed. Paul in one of his letters will say, I endure all things for the sake of the elect. Because he understood That although God irresistibly calls by His powerful grace, those who are elected to salvation, they come to salvation through the operation of the means of God's grace, the preaching of the gospel. Therefore, we can have confidence when we share the gospel that God will use it by His Spirit to bring salvation into the lives of those who believe. I think there's five things that we can learn from this, this idea of irresistible grace of God. And I'm going to quote a few statements from the Canons of Dort to talk about these things, but I'm going to use a newer translation, so maybe it'll be a little bit easier to understand. The first is, I think this should bring us, as the people of God, a sense of humble gratitude. In Article 7, we're told, therefore, those who receive so much grace Beyond and in spite of all they deserve, ought to acknowledge it with humble and thankful hearts. That is, why is it that we have received grace and others have not? The difference is not found in us, it's found in God. Therefore, we should have a sense of humble gratitude. In Article 15, canons say something similar. It says, In no way, however, are we to pride ourselves as better than they who do not believe, as though we have distinguished ourselves from them. There's no place for boasting in this grace of God. Uh, The second thing that I think we can learn is that we can learn to have reverence for and praise the righteous justice of God. In Article 7, after it said, Therefore those who receive so much grace beyond and in spite of all they deserve ought to acknowledge it with humble and thankful hearts, it goes on to say, On the other hand, With the apostle they ought to adore, but certainly not inquisitively search into the severity and justice of God's judgments on others who do not receive this grace. We do not know those who are not elect, but we do know from the scriptures that it is in those who God justly leaves in their sin That he displays his righteousness and his wrath. And that is something that we will come to praise God for and know he is right for doing. The third thing that we can learn from this is what I call an attitude of charity toward professed believers. Article 15 says, following the example of the apostles... We are to think and to speak in the most favorable way about those who outwardly profess their faith and better their lives, for the inner chambers of the heart are unknown to us. That is, we are to have an attitude of charity toward those who proclaim to be believers in Jesus Christ. We are to treat them as believers in Jesus Christ unless they show or prove by their lives something otherwise. We are to give them And treat them in a most favorable way. And speak to them in a way that corresponds with their profession of faith. For we, as believers, do not know the heart. It's unknown to us. The fourth thing that we can learn is to have a sincere desire to see others come to faith in Christ. Article 15 goes on. But for others who have not yet been called, we are to pray to the God who calls things that do not exist as though they did. That is to say, this doctrine... Of the irresistible grace of God is not something that should place water on the flames of our zeal for evangelism. It should actually be something that sparks our desire to pray for those who have not yet been called. Because we pray to a God who calls things that are not as though they are. Or, in another word, we pray to a God who in creation said, Let there be light in the same way that he said, Let there be light in our hearts that we may come to faith in Christ. So we know that God has the power to save those whom we share the gospel to and whom we pray with. And the final thing I think that this teaches us is to avail ourselves of the means of grace. Not only the preaching of the word, but also the sacraments. And I would say prayer. Article 17 talks about this. It says, The aforementioned supernatural work of God by which he regenerates us, in no way rules out or cancels the use of the gospel, which God in his great wisdom has appointed to be the seed of regeneration and the food of the soul. The power of the gospel is in understanding and knowing that God uses it as a means of his grace. Article 17 also says, For this reason the apostles and the teachers who followed them taught the people in a godly manner about this grace of God, to give him glory and to humble all pride, and yet did not neglect, meanwhile, Keep the people by means of holy admonitions of the gospel under the administration of the word, the sacraments, and discipline. And then finally it says, so even today, it is out of the question that the teachers are those taught or those taught in the church should presume to test God by separating what he and his good pleasure has wished to be closely joined together. For grace is bestowed through admonitions, and the more readily we perform our duty, The more lustrous the benefit of God working in us usually is and the better his work advances. So people of God, this teaching of the irresistible grace of God should call us to throw ourselves upon and to avail ourselves of the preaching of the word, to improve upon our baptism and to participate in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper that that grace of God which he has given to us may be strengthened, may grow. And we may find that we truly have a Savior who has redeemed us through and through. This is the teaching of God's grace and it is a wonderful and blessed teaching. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words. We ask, Lord, that you would humble us, that you would put us in all of your justice and righteousness, that you would help us to treat others who have proclaimed that you are their God and that Christ is their Savior favorably. That you would grant us a zeal and a desire to see others who have not yet been called to come to faith in Christ and that you would help us to see the good and the preaching of the gospel, the power in it. And that you would help us to desire the use of, of the means of grace and the preaching of the word, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.